0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources, and curated by homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com, we've done your homework. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob sets Podcast. My guest today is musician, promotion man, A&R man, manager Phil Carson. Hello, good evening and welcome okay how'd you sign acdc uh i signed acdc in
2: 1975 uh it it was luck as most things are in the A&R business, and I don't care who tells you differently, it's 95% luck of being in the right place at the right time, and 5% knowing that what is put in front of you might be worth something. And such was the case with ACDC. I was uh, running Atlantic Records outside of America at the time.
1: and So you had the whole world other than America? The whole world other okay. than America. And at that time, you remember, how many uh, offices were there? Uh, well, the, the only Atlantic
2: offices were Los Angeles and uh, New York and mine in London. Right. But we had distribution throughout the world through uh, WEA.
1: Right. But did, did you have any people? I, had, I mean, like, did you have somebody in Sydney?
2: No. We had, well, we had a label manager in Sydney. Okay. But, but he was not employed by Atlantic. He was employed by… By the distributor. By, the, by the, our owned distribution company, which was WEA.
1: Right. So you got after when it was already, you got in, it was already branch distribution, but I interrupted you. Tell me the story.
2: Well, we'll get into that in a minute because it was, that's not quite the case, but you know, we'll go back to that. So the story of ACDC is this, I'd signed a, a band called Backstreet Crawler. And Backstreet Crawler was uh, put together by Paul Kosoff, who, as you know, was the guitarist in Free with that wonderful guitar solo in All Right Now. And he put a band together and actually done a tour and recorded a, one live show, which I heard, and I thought, boy, oh, this, this is fabulous. It, what he's done is fabulous. And so, uh, you know, I signed the, the band. And I was you know, in the project, and I, I just felt it missed a tiny little something, and it. Need, I thought it needed some keyboards in in the mix. So uh, I tracked down this guy that occasionally played for um, uh, the who did he play? The crazy played in the free. And later he played in The Who uh Boz Bundrick, Rabbit. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to find, where the fuck can I find this guy? You know? and, uh, <laughs> so I've called around all the studios and I eventually I found that somebody called me and said, oh, well, he's managed by this Australian girl, you know. So uh, he, I, I got in contact with this young woman uh her name was Coral Browning right and coral in those days i think she may be 23 or 24 so she comes into my office and she is drop dead gorgeous coral and uh, you know um <laughs> really so well that's very nice but she was so professional you know she we made the deal for the for him to, to record on these tracks and, uh, and then she said to me she said i hope you don't think this is unprofessional of me but can i talk to you about something else well she could have talked to me about anything <laughs> so um she brought out a, a thing that i've never seen before and certainly never seen since uh, it, it looked like a briefcase and it opened up like a briefcase but in the jaws so to speak a screen popped down this is 1975 before the age of videos so it was a back projection. Uh, machine that ran Super 8 with wow. au- with audio, and it was uh, it was super, it was AC/DC doing a Long Way to the Top. Okay, I so, quote
1: it almost every day. So, so, so. people don't realize in today's era, it's truly a long way to the it top. if you want to rock is. and roll? Oh yeah. So anyway, she plays me this thing and. Uh,
2: and I, she always reminds me. I stopped it halfway through. I, hit, I saw the stop button. I said, "Well, just tell me again about this band." She said, "Well, you know, my little brother manages the band They're from Australia." And at that time, I said, "Who gave?" It a, nobody cared what happened in Australia. The Easy Beats, are, are, right. You know. Uh, by the way, one of the Easy Beats was, it turns out, the brother of uh, a, a young brother. So of which there are many. So. Uh, I said, look, he said, she said, this is a, the record company's called Alberts, and they're pretty big over there, and ACDC are doing really well to the point where they want to get signed, so they've given me a budget to bring the band to England, and look, I've already set up these dates, and she gives me this list of dates with all the opinion-making places around London, and she said, well, perhaps you'll, you'll come and see them. I said, well, I don't know. I said, i tell you, what, what if I signed them now? <laughs> right? and we'll uh, we we'll call your little brother on the phone and we'll see if we can get this done. And then the record company can still send them over, but I'll put them on a tour. In fact, I'm going to put them on the Backstreet Crawler tour to open for Backstreet Crawler. So he says, you can do that. I said, I can do that. <laughs> so uh, we called uh, Michael Browning, and I made the deal for ACDC over the phone, which is matter of record, so I'm not giving you any unknown information here, but I signed ACDC for $25,000 per album, delivered, finished per album. And how many albums? Well, it's an interesting question because I signed them with the options. And I said, okay, we want three albums a year and we want... Four options after the first year so your math will tell you that was a 15 album deal right which turned out to be the most profitable record deal in the history of the music business the last album which was uh, sold by atlantic to sony was sold for 10 million dollars now this was before the days when a and R people got a piece of the action right but you know when it started to do well i bought me a bentley so i i, I was thankful for that you know but uh,
1: Okay, well, Richard Griffiths, he was the agent. He tells a story of, of course, Paul Kossoff dies on the way to do the gig. That's right. Yeah, he did. And then he says, <coughs> ACDC decided to play anyway. And he said there were like five people in the audience. And when they played, those five people left. And they thought, because they did the whole thing with Angus on the shoulders, whatever. Sure. And he said they called everybody they knew for the second set totally full. It's
2: more or less true what happened. We obviously had to cancel the actual Paul Kosovo tour, but so we set them up in some pubs around London, and it it was incredible. It caught fire really quickly, and uh, then they're doing the marquee, and it's all moving along, and... uh, you know, I compiled the first album from their two first Australian records, um, high voltage and whatever whatever right, whatever it was. and that that's what made the first ACDC album. I had
1: six tracks from each each record. So uh, now, did you stay with ACDC as their uh, representative at the label all through their career there? Uh, sure, I did. Yeah. Okay, I mean, so the question becomes, uh, Dirty Deeds is not released in America. When it's when it's recorded, Correct. okay. So, what was the company's viewpoint on the act at that point in time?
2: The A&R department hated them. Okay, <laughs> they said this. They're going nowhere. This is a derivative album, and you know we're passing. Fortunately, I managed to intercept it before the drop notice went out. Um, but it, that took a little while to do. So we actually did lose one album out of my 15 because of that uh, decision. But you know, nobody thought they were going anywhere. Right. And, of course, what happened later on, uh, many years later, uh, after we'd made Back in Black, um, I got a call from Doug Morris, who was by then president of Atlantic, saying, uh, look, you know, we want to release, we found, we don't have, we never put this album right because I put it out in Europe, by the way. Right. Uh, And he said, we're going to put it out now. And I remember saying to him, are you crazy? Because what are you going to do? You're following a Brian Johnson vocal with a Bon Scott vocal. He, he said, yeah, but look, it's toward the end of the year. We've had a great year, <laughs> you know, which is going to uh, affect all our Christmas bonuses. I said, "It will, no doubt do that, Doug. But what it's going to do is create a new sales plateau for uh, ACDC. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, we'd, at the time we'd sold 5 million back in Blacks. And he said, we're going to do two million with this, worse way. I said, you're right. We'll do two million. But you'll never have an ACDC album again that does more than two million. And
1: I was pretty well right on that. Okay, let's dig a little deeper. So the last album with Bon Scott is produced by Mutt Lang. How does that come together?
2: Uh, John Colonna, well, I then had joined oh, Atlantic. Really? You know, and uh, John was, you know... Really, he and I used to work a lot together on making these kind of decisions, and he had seen what Mutt um, had done with a with a group called Tycoon, which was an Atlantic release, and he and Jerry, uh, thought, Jerry Greenberg Jerry Greenberg thought that this would be a, a, a very good mix to put together, and it turned out to be to be magic, actually.
1: Okay now, back in black still to this moment one of the great albums of all time for those about to rock didn't live up to that level artistically irrelevant of sales well
2: let's think about it you know right dirty deeds came out in the middle so suddenly you've got a confused audience who's the singer of acdc is it this new guy from newcastle or is it this great bare-chested rock and roller bon scott you know, it was confusing. So we did do two million with with um, 30 For those about to Rock and, oh, then, right, D's. and then we did two million with for those about to rock, which I thought was a pretty good album. Had Doug not made that monumental error, uh A C D C would have Really kept going at that kind of level, but it took the steam out of it. And then, after those about to rock, they had a couple of albums which didn't do that well, right? Flick a, with a switch, fly on the wall, right? Were not particularly good. They also made an internal mistake, okay? They took Brian Johnson out of the writing mix. One of the reasons that Back in Black did so well was his kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek lyrics, which with anybody else could be cheesy, but with him, they worked really well. They touched a nerve in America and all over the world. And that album now, I think, is something like 25 million that album has done. Okay.
1: Okay. Some people I won't mention their names, but closely involved said a lot of that music was written before Bon Scott died. Is that true? Well, you, back in
2: black, back in black, they had some riffs. That, that is absolutely true. Yes, it is true. But the actual lyrics and the melodies that went on them was really the work of Brian and of course Matt Lange. I mean, they,
1: okay. And then oh, I didn't know that Brian was that involved on the lyrics at that point. How did you? Were you involved in finding Brian? Uh,
2: I was, they, they had met Brian, funnily enough, at a show in Newcastle years ago in a club after an ACDC show. And Bon Scott arrived at their table and said, if anything happens to me, this is your guy. <laughs> right? And because he was then in a group called Geordie, which were, right. you know, doing doing pretty well. But yeah, I was involved in making the deal for him to join ACDC with... Uh, I think Peter Mensch had taken exactly. over the band by then, who did an amazing job with the ACDC. But then he got fired. Well, yeah, he did. Well, he fell foul of the Youngs eventually. Yeah, I... I mean, it's not for nothing that they're called the Brothers Grimm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. How'd you get your job with Atlantic Records to begin with?
2: Uh, and it's very interesting, really. I'd, I'd actually left the music business for a while. And I was actually in the supermarket game.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa! whoa. Then that begs a question. So, you you grew up where? In London. In London. What did mm-hmm. your father do for a living? I would say your mother, but at that point, usually women didn't tend to work.
2: Yeah, they, they, they said, my, my mother did not work. My father was uh, with a, was with a tea company, and my uncle was with a small supermarket company. So everybody said, "Well, you, the food business is great, son. You've got to get in there." So uh, I first of all. Um,
1: Joined Lions. Wait, wait, wait. wait before you go there, how many siblings, brothers and sisters? None. Now, you're the only kid.
2: Hey. they would achieved the <laughs> ultimate. What do you want?
1: <laughs> so, do <clears throat> you think they only wanted to have one kid? No, I told them they couldn't have any more at that point. No. Okay. So, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. But a lot of times, you're the only kid... You know, you're coddled. The hopes and dreams. There's story after story. Rick Rubin was an only kid. Yeah. Uh, what was it like? Were your parents very accepting of you, or were you a rebel? I was not a rebel. I, I went to. I did pretty well at school, you know. So I was in, in. I was
2: destined to go to university, uh, but you know, I caught the bug. You know, in England we got this perverse way of school works. It's not the grade system that you guys have. Uh, at a good English school, you go right up to the age of nineteen. They call it the sixth form. There's two years in the sixth form, which are probably as good as four years in American University I hate to say that okay. but it is true so uh, I did not go into the sixth form uh, I left before simply because the boys in the sixth form had a rock band and as a well it was a skiffle band actually because it, before, so what year are we in 1950 uh, okay long nine. before the Beatles it
1: was before the Beatles right. for sure. Lonnie Donnegan, all that stuff. And Lonnie
2: Donnegan certainly was around, yeah, it was Rock Island Line and right. all those great songs. And and this little acoustic guitar band, and when they were taking a break I'd pick up their guitars and blaze away. So eventually I decided that, you know, I wanted to play music while well, I was still at school. And the Easiest job, I wasn't a great guitar player, but then I realized that a bass guitar it's only got four strings, you <laughs> see, so it's a little easier to articulate four strings than six. So I bought a bass guitar and what kind? Hoffner, okay, just not, th- not the same as Paul McCartney's, right. but the, 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 another model that they okay. had, and that was how I started and uh, joined a local band. Funnily enough, the local band I was in was based in southeast London, where all the great guitar players came from really so uh, not many know this but eric clapton jeff beck jimmy page mick green who was an amazing guitar player in a band called johnny kid and the pirates
1: was that peter green related to peter no, green no, no, okay no mick green you you've got to check him out. well i mean johnny kid and the pirates never made it here we read about it in english history that's right
2: yeah but if you listen oh. to that group, they they. Were okay, phenomenal. so of
1: those three and uh, Mr. Green, who do you personally think is the best?
2: I've got to give it to Jimmy Page, really. Although I love Jeff Beck's style, I mean he is in- incredible. I mean he plays with no pick. I, I saw him in concert recently, and he he did something just on harmonics. It was. Uh, what was that damn song? It was a big old standard of its right. time. Judy Garland was in the movie. What's the famous movie?
1: Oh, you're talking about Over the Rainbow.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Over the Rainbow. There you are. I wasn't too far out of it. No, no. Anyway, he played that song on harmonics. I don't think he played like a regular note. It was all harmonics. I'm listening to this guy. My God, what a player.
1: Well, I think he's the best player. Obviously, yeah. Jimmy could write and produce that yeah. Jeff couldn't. That's right. But uh, okay, so you're playing with this band. It's a skiffle band, I assume. Well,
2: no. By then, yeah, I sort of that was the school band. But by then, I bought a bass guitar. And I, it was an early rock group. You know, we just, we covered all the Gene Vincent things. That that
1: sort okay, of. Okay, was it. that your only job? No, it's still a school okay in that time but you didn't go to sixth form
2: i did not i left it when i was just 17. But, okay so, so but, i was doing that since i was 15.
1: okay and did the rest of the band also leave school
2: well they, i was not at school with, with the rest of them then oh, I, I, see. I joined a group that was already already going you know so so uh,
1: could you make a living working for the absolutely
2: group absolutely not that was just a, like a semi-pro little band you know but i got the bug you know i thought i wanted to play and okay uh, so did you have a day job I didn't have a day job at that point. No, I was still at school. I'm telling you. Listen. Okay, but once you were out of school. <laughs> once out of school. school yeah. And
1: you're playing in the band. Do you your parents say, hey, you got to earn a buck? Or yeah, they well, say-
2: I, I, got a, I, I got a job for a little while. I, I wanted to be a rocket scientist. I really did. So I got a job at the Air Ministry in London, which lasted about, I don't know, four or five weeks. And uh, I was in... Um, English people love an acronyms. Acronyms, you know, that's a... It was SAM, with two A's. Scientific Advisor to the Air Ministry. I love that. So so there I was in there. and I, I Somehow, I can't even remember how, I got an offer to join a group called the Londoners. Now, the Londoners was a seminal english band uh this was i guess when was that 1960 uh 62 okay the Londoners had just come back from hamburg and they were really on it they were Really happening band. You can read about them. I don't think they've they made a couple of records in Hamburg. Well, they, yeah, they
1: didn't make it at all here, but I no. certainly heard the
2: name. Yeah, well, they, they, so I joined this band, and my grandmother, who had been a showgirl in the early part of the 20th century, says to me, she said, well, look, she was a showbiz lady, and her my aunt who was uh, her daughter you know was also in, in the sh- in the show business so she says um, well you know what guitar what, what guitar do you play i said well i play a uh hofner bass guitar She, i don't know what a bass guitar is what is i said well it's right. like a bass okay she said well what's the best one i said well fender precision is going to be the best one she says you well, just go and get one i'll pay for it i said what you know how much they are? They're one hundred and twenty-five pounds. Right, you know, which is <laughs> right. about two hundred dollars right. in today's money. So she says, "Yeah, just go and get it." You know, I said, uh, "Wow, thank you." And she said, well, "Don't you need one of those box things that goes with you know that thing so you can hear?" I said, "Well, yes, it's an amplifier. What's the best amplifier?" So now I'm now I'm on a roll, right? Right. I said, "Well, it's a Fender Basement amplifier," you know. Nobody had a Fender Bassman after that, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'd seen one in the shop window in right. Charing Cross Road, and it was the bee's knees. Now, you've got to realize, back in those days, the first question when you call up for a job as a musician was, what you got? Okay. Fender bass, fender bass. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. If you had a van, you you, you, got <laughs> you the gig. You totally got the gig. You, you got the gig without even playing. No, <laughs> right. You know? so, but I didn't have a van at that point. But I did get the gig. And I wasn't a bad bass player. I wasn't bad.
1: Okay. But a little bit slower. If Londoners were happening, how do you get the gig?
2: Do you know? I honestly don't remember. I mean, it must have been a phone call or something. Musicians used to hang out those days in, at Charing Cross Road. in London, and there was a particular store where it it was the birthplace of a lot of bands Uh, it was Jennings Music Store, that's where they, they were the Vox distributor, Vox amp distributor and downstairs they had a basement I mean, back in those days I was actually in a band with Jeff Beck it lasted nearly all day. <laughs> so uh, but you know we're still friends, I mean we we were jamming down then, we were going to start a band together. I remember driving round London looking for particular musicians
1: to join this band but it never went past oh. that. <laughs> okay, well, I'm getting more of a feel. Okay, so you joined the Londoners. Yes. And you weren't that good a bass player. What happens next?
2: Well, the the, that, the Londoners were a really strong band. I mean, they're really great players. Uh, they were one of the first bands to start playing Ray Charles music, for example. So the only place that people like to hear what they had to offer actually with the American basses around around England so that's where we played a lot and you know you're playing like three sets a night and it was it showed me what you had to do and then I saw an ad in a in a in melody maker I think it was which was the old right. English paper a bass player wanted to join vocal group okay, so I, said, oh, I can't sing for shit but still I'll phone up And it turns out it's a group called the Springfields, okay, which is, in those days, it was Dusty Springfield, her brother Tom and Mike Hurst. Mike Hurst went on to produce early Cat Stevens records, so, you know, same conversation, what do you play, well, Fender Bass. Right, right, right. But this time there was an audition, which I passed, and I joined the Springfields, and that was Fantastic! I mean, they had two hits right then: that Island of Dreams and Say I Won't Be There. And we we're playing all these big places—well, big, two thousand-seat uh, package tours. You know, in England, I, th- I think it was pretty much the same in America. But they used to have these package tours Absolutely. that would go out. And I remember doing them with Del Shannon, Johnny Tillotson. I mean, th- these were the happening names of
1: that time. Okay, let's stop for a second. Yes. What do the Londoners say when you're going to quit? I can't
2: repeat that in. in uh, you know, I mean, the, the band was sort of grinding to a halt. To be honest with you, I mean, they, were, they didn't like doing these American bases. They couldn't get work anyplace else. They were thinking of going back to Hamburg, but that boat had kind of sailed by. That okay,
1: time. did you play on those Springfield hits, or they were they already released?
2: Uh, they were already released by the time I I was just a touring musician. I understand.
1: And now you're on tour with all these people. Yeah. Are you the type who ingratiates and becomes friends with all the musicians or you stick to yourself?
2: No, I was out there. You know, I was, you know, you know, Gone great with Johnny Tillotson, terrific guy. I of I was in touch with him for years, actually. You no, know, and it was a. It was like a family. These tours are put together, and they last I don't know three to five weeks or whatever right. it is, and you become a family. You know, and you're all traveling in the same transport. By right. the way, you're on a bus. You know, but not like sleepers. It's right. right. Seats, it's you know? like a regular yeah. bus. And Del Shannon would be up there, or Johnny, or whatever the other people we were playing with, and it was it was pretty exciting. You know. So, how
1: long did it last with you in the Springfields? Just a matter of
2: months. I mean, they told me they were going to break up in the in '63. I joined them in '62, and they.
1: Why were they going to break up? Because Dusty was going to go. So- Dusty
2: wanted to go solo. She had some. She she fell in love with R and B music. You know what had happened? They they'd gone to Memphis before I joined them, uh, to record uh, an album. And she sort of fell in love with R and B music while she was there, and that she saw herself getting involved in that that line of music. The interesting thing is, you know. So I know the band's going to break up, right? So uh, tr- Mike Hurst says to me, "Well, hey, let's get a band together." So I said, "Oh, great, Mike. Yeah, we will." The next day, Dusty said, "Would you come and be my musical director?" Yeah. I said, I'm sorry. I you know, just promised Mike. You know, you're a day late. So, uh, to cut a long story short, the Mike Hurst band never played a day. And Dusty
1: went on to be Dusty Springfield. Well, okay, so you didn't realize she was going to be Dusty Springfield. No, I
2: knew she was going to. I mean, she was. You've got no idea. You know, okay, were
1: it? you? What was it like? Did you have a crush on Dusty Springfield? Uh, I actually, she, she was a.
2: Very attractive young woman, I've got to tell you. But uh, you know, uh, and uh, we used to hang out a lot together. You know, frankly, it was, but it was just fun. I mean, that, right? Certainly never. I suppose I had a kind of bit of. A okay, crush. so
1: she gets another musical director. You're with Mike kirst Yeah, that doesn't go. Yes, went nowhere. Absolutely
2: right. nowhere. So now I'm stuck with my Fender basement and Fender basement amplifier and Fender precision bass guitar, rather, and nowhere to go. So I start looking for other jobs and. Uh, because I'd been with the Springfields, okay, which was a high-profile right. high pro, high thing, I was kind of sought after, you know, particularly because, because I had the Fender base and defender base. But at a, this
1: point, with all this work, you must have been getting better. Oh, I was certainly getting better, but, I've, you know, I mean... You were now jo- Jaco Pistorius. Well, not up, not quite up
2: yeah. there. Or, I mean, in later years, you know, way after this happened, of course, when I joined Atlantic... Uh, the guys in Zeppelin knew I was a, a, a musician. They used to let me play with them, for God's <laughs> sake. But the, And what happened, John Paul Jones would go over and play keyboards, right. and I would play bass, and they'd do some old rock songs. They were always very kind to me. They did things which would have just been three or four chord changes, and uh, that was it. But this I, is in
1: rehearsal or on no, stage? No,
2: on stage, come on. <laughs> and uh, the, the interesting thing is, I say this all the time, that John Paul Jones could play better bass with his feet on the, the <laughs> pedals of a Hammond organ right. than I could ever manage. I mean, you listen to Since I've Been Loving You, that right. unbelievable bass line, that's on the Hammond. You know, he's just a monster musician so really i know I'm, i knew i made the right decision because with players out there well that's course.
1: just i remember myself uh, we all play guitars after the beatles sure and i went to my friend's house i had a cheap japanese guitar he had an es335 mm-hmm. and he said now we're going to change keys and i said i'm out
2: <laughs> that's right yeah yeah okay so get you.
1: so the hearse band goes nowhere
2: nowhere right so i joined uh, uh the first one i joined was uh, Houston Wells and the Marksman? I mean, I know you know that name of really course. well. Okay, so just to refresh those who have not heard of Houston Wells and the Marksman, it was an uh, English country band, which was, could have been destined to go nowhere, except they'd recorded with Joe Meek, okay, okay. The, le- the legendary Joe Meek, who was really the first independent producer of note. And they made a record called Only the Heartaches, which was a country song. And it was a hit. And before I joined them, they'd recorded it. So it was a huge hit. So then now we're off doing package tours with... Houston Wells and the Marksman We were supporting groups like Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, uh, the Beatles. We supported the Beatles on their first tour of Scotland. We were actually second on the bill to the Beatles. See, in those days, the pecking order of where you were on the set dip- was dependent on where you were in the chart. And we had a big record. I mean, we were like t- no, 13 on the chart before... The, uh, uh, they must have been higher up than us, because obviously they were the Beatles by then. But uh, we actually kept them off number one in Ireland f-
1: for a week. You know, it was a big okay. song. Okay, you know, I remember when Beatlemania happened in America. Yes. What was it like in the UK? At what point did you realize this was just not another band? Oh, boy. I mean, the night, the first night on the, f-
2: the date of the tour, uh, I was sort of... Mouth Almighty of the uh, the Houston Wells and the Mars. We would start with an instrumental, okay? And we're we're, we're wearing sort of country-looking gear, you know? And we're, so we're up there and we play this thing called Guitar Boogie Shovel, which is a straight kind of 12-bar blues. And uh, I'll get to the end of it and we'd start the uh, the riff of the next song, you know, and it would be me that would do the, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How you all doing out there? I'd now like to bring on the star of our show, Houston Wells. Well, that introduction was fine when we were headlining. The night in Glasgow, it didn't go down so well because I did my thing. Hey, I'd now like you to see the star of our show. And the audience went,
1: whoa! <laughs> right that.
2: And I was like, Houston Wells. <laughs> so, so he walked on to total silence. He didn't like that very much. Very. That's when I knew the Beatles What the? Oh, and by the way, by then, I did have a van by then. And it was a white van, and it was exactly the same as the Beatles van. So we're trying to get out the gig. People think we're the Beatles, and the van's being rocked. So that's when I knew how big the Beatles were. Okay,
1: play. but musically, of course, the first records came out in 62. Yes. And it didn't, as I say, first i want to hold your hand was released the very end of 63 in america right. she yeah. loved you had come out earlier on swan but no one had heard it that's true so when this stuff starts to come out and everybody's this is a monoculture everybody's listening to the same radio show etc 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 when was it realized when did the beatles sort of take over the scene
2: it was 63 in, in England, for sure. I mean, they were... This tour, I can't remember what month it was, to be yeah. honest with you, but by then they were really rocking. You know, they, they were happening. So, Then were you a fan? Oh, I thought they were terrific. Are you kidding me? I, I do remember one actually at that same gig in Glasgow. Nobody had roadies in those days, including the Beatles. They had one <laughs> guy, you know. So, you know, they, there they were on the side of the stage, and we were... Directly under them, so we were going right before the Beatles. So they're there checking us out, and of course, you, you carry your own bloody amplifier onto the stage, you know. And so, uh, with, uh, with your guitar, oh no, it's, the amplifier's already there, but you've got your guitar, and I've got right. my, my lead in my hand. Suddenly, just before we're going on, my guitar lead crumbles, and
1: you know, what well, an America. chord, a chord, exactly, right. exactly.
3: Okay.
2: So it crumbled. So and Paul McCartney said, Hey, hey, Paul, man, can I borrow your chord? Sure. And he lends me the guitar chord. And the, the funny thing about that is the only interaction I had with Paul McCartney until years later when I made a movie about Sun Records and it was a documentary. And I wanted Paul to do That's All Right, Mama. With Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana, Elvis's guys, which he, you know, got hold of his manager and he, he said, "Look, I know who you are. You ran Atlantic for years. I mean, everybody. I mean, it was in London. Everybody right. knew how I was there." But so he says, "Did you, did you know Paul?" I said, "Well, you know, I only met him once." and told him this story. He said, put that in the letter, you'll like that. <laughs> and he did, you know, and he agreed to do this this thing with us. Did but, but he didn't remember giving it. Oh, he the did no he didn't remember that, of course not. Of course. I just yeah. wonder, you never know. No.
1: things stick out Okay, so you're playing and they have a hit uh, the, with a the country styled act, then yeah. what goes? Then what happens?
2: Well, we did another record with Joe Meek, which I was on, and uh, I mean, just recording with Joe Meek was an incredible experience. So, what was it like? Well, it was days before multi-track had been invented, right? Right. right? So he had two 15 IPS uh, inches per mono second mono machines, right? Okay? And he would bounce tracks from one to the other. So he would build. A song, you know, by simply bouncing tracks back and forth. And would he do that all on the same day, or would he mix after you left? He mixed after we left, but, but by the time he got to the end, overdub, it was pretty done because you can't actually go back you know, if you're using that principle. Right, you can only go back one or two generations. So, uh, but he would. The band would basically do the track live. And he would do it many times and he'd eventually get it right. It was in a tiny little, it was above a leather goods store in northeast <laughs> London. It was like a two room apartment. It was intense. I mean, the equipment was just these two machines and a, a, a mixer, which was rotary knobs on it. Right, right. Very unsophisticated. But he got the sounds, you know. And then he'd, the last thing he would do was put the vocal on. And uh, that was it. But the second record went nowhere.
1: Okay, uh, but at this point in yeah. time, there's Beatlemania. Sure. And not long after that, people say, "Whoa, I can make a lot of dough doing this. Yes. Well, was that somewhere the dream? No, because at the
2: time, you know, uh, the, the next tour that we did with uh, Houston Wells was uh, with Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, and uh, I think Johnny Kidd was on that. So by then, this the Mersey Beat thing had erupted. And they're all uh, the foremost. Silla Black, you know, we right. tour. We tour with all those people because in this short window where we had a big hit, we were something a little bit different to the Brian Epstein crew, which right. was, was the main fodder. So we just would come in and do our little thing. So how does it end with that? Band? Ba- badly, you know, it was. Uh, Houston Wells got too big for his boots. I didn't like him. I started a revolution. And then I found it was a revolution of one. So uh, I got the sack from uh, Houston Wells and the Marksman, who then disappeared into oblivion. So it didn't really matter. But then, because then I've been in the Springfields, Houston Wells right. and the Marksman, and I still had my fender bass <laughs> and fender basement <laughs> and a van now. Okay. And I joined a group called the Lorne Gibson Trio which, of course, you've never heard of. Of course they, not. They, 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 had, they were a country band as well. And they had one hit in England called Some Do, Some Don't. And they also had a, a radio series, believe it or not. It was called Side by Side with the Lorne Gibson Trio on BBC Radio. And each week we would do uh, record a, a show, and it would be us and another band. Wayne Fontana and the mind Benders, um, the Beatles, were on that show with us you know so that lasted a little while uh, I can't quite remember by then I was about 19 and I'm getting a, and I'm not making any money by the way longer it's a a tight- type still living at home you're just still living at home you know coming in late at night and uh, it's not going down that well and by then my uncle had really started moving a little bit up the chain in the supermarket business so he said look you know i can't bring the company's too small to bring you in now uh, because but if you go and learn the business somewhere else you know then we can put you in there He eventually, by the way, became chairman of Safeway Europe. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. He was really in the supermarket Yeah, he really was. In fact, he tried to buy Safeway with the leverage buyer. That's the kind of guy he was. So um, anyway, so I I get a job with another supermarket, and uh, one day... Uh, the guy who was with salesman for Maxwell House Coffee mm. and, of course, Bird's Custard, that you know well, came in to, um, you know, take the, the weekly order, and he's got a guy in a nice suit with him, and I'm on the floor pricing up cans of beans or something, you know. So you know, the guy in the nice suit says, uh, oh, we've heard a lot about you. You're one of the youngest supermarket managers in London. I said, well, yeah, I suppose I am. He says... Um, Well, we've got a training program at uh, General Foods and uh, I only usually hire university graduates, but you're now about the right age and uh, do you want to join it? And I joined General Foods and I was there for almost four years and it was really changed my life, actually, because I then completely stopped playing. I didn't even pick the guitar up again. My, actually, my precision base got stolen. I remember that, so uh, you know, it really disheartened me. And I went and thought, All right, I'm going to do this." And I was in the General Foods um, product development group, and uh, doing marketing and setting up sales campaigns, and this, that, and the other. And uh, that's that led to the next job in a very perverse manner, which I shall tell you. Okay, the uh, General Foods was based in those days up in Birmingham. And uh, we were having a sales convention in London. And I remember this uh, marketing director, the guy that hired me, said, look, I'm getting fed up with the elitism that exists between the sales force and the marketing group. We're all in this together. And we're going to go, we're having this convention in uh, London. And I want each of you to take out a group of salesmen. I remember, I thought, isn't that a bit elitist, right, right there? Of course, but I didn't say anything. So, listen. So, I've got my little group of salesmen, three or four guys. You know, we're all in suits, and I take them to a restaurant in Berkeley Square. Now, I could have walked back to the hotel we were staying at ten different ways, okay? But I, for some reason, I chose to walk back through South Moulton Street, in which is just off Oxford Street. And we walked out there, and I suddenly realized there's a recording studio there that I'd recorded in. And uh, I said to this group of salesmen, any of you guys ever been in a recording studio? And the unsurprising answer was no. Right. So I said, I'll just ring the bell, Says, so anybody I know. Now, bear in mind, it's a good three years since I'd recorded anything. So I ring the bell. There's this Swedish engineer in there that I'd work with called Dag Fjellner and he was a designer of desks he's quite well known in london at the time so he said oh well, come on up you know come on up you know uh, i'm just finish off and mix with this swedish band you know so uh this was what 19 when did i do that must have been 68 yeah 68 so i go up there and there's this swedish group he's just in the mixing stage and the manager is there and uh, dag introduces me to the manager from what, what i was and the manager looks at me in a suit with these three right. bozos. bozos is what, what are you doing what are you doing like that you know. right so, so i told him he said well you know i want to start a record label will you join me i said okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> just have-
2: Because he was a very wealthy Swedish guy. I knew who he was. His name was Orke Erhard Larson. And uh, he had a a record company called Olga Records, which was doing incredibly well in the four markets of Scandinavia. And the group he was uh, in there finishing up the recording with was called the Hepstars, which were massive in those markets i mean they had two sets of equipment and they would play two places in a day you know outdoor festivals in the very short summer of, of in, scandinavia yeah, right. yeah but they were really big i mean they, they were selling more records than the beatles in in those days so uh, i, I agree to join this guy and we start selling olga our truck start trying to market Olga Records in England, and I made a distribution deal with EMI, but it was impossible. I mean, it re- they had some great stuff, but it was just impossible to get it off the ground. But, you know, by then, you know, the, I was, they noticed me a bit at um, EMI, and, uh, th- who were distributors of so many American labels at that point, before the days when right. the American labels had their own companies. So uh, they introduced me to, to MGM, so I switched from Olga Records to MGM at a great moment because that was when Stanley Kubrick was uh, finishing up uh, 2001, 2001, and I actually worked with him on setting up the marketing, you know, for 2001, and he was absolutely terrific. I mean, my God, what a detail-oriented chap he turned out to be. But you know, that was a good moment for me there and uh, that lasted about six months and then I started to get these calls from this guy called Frank Fenter and you know he's a South African but he's sort of really very hip kind of guy and he said man you know I'm leaving Atlantic Records to go and join the uh, uh, Phil Walden we're going to start a record label we've got this band the Ormond Brothers but they need someone here and heard a lot about you and you know my my boss wants to talk to you I said oh, well okay but by then I kind of got fed up with the music business and I'd taken an interview with McCann Erickson, <laughs> right the
1: and, advertising agency
2: and I got the job as account director for two products um Danish bacon they still make good bacon, mind you, and Lurpak butter, which is also Danish. They were they were sort of premium brand leaders, and uh, I was going to be the account director for those two brands. Big job, and it was well paid for for its time too. It was uh, I was going to get three and a half thousand pounds a year and a company car. To put it into perspective, my father, who was still at Lion's Tea at this time, was an area sales manager with four or five guys working for him, and he was making two and a half thousand pounds a year. So it was, you know. Right, big, big time. Big deal. I mean, an account executive at a big agency is a big deal to this day. So, so I agreed to take the job. And then I start getting these calls from Frank Fender and then from this guy with an unpronounceable name that sounded something like Nahusi Huerti Gertney. Right. So it turns out to be, of course, Nessui Erdogan. And uh, I'll never forget that meeting. You know, I'd show up in my suit and tie. And it's at uh, Claridge's Hotel in London. And uh, he's got a nice suite in there and he's very... Total gentleman, right? I don't, the Ertigans were fabulous people, right. but we'll talk more about that in a moment. But he, there he is in this magnificent suite, and uh, he tells me that he's heard a lot about me and that he knows I was a musician. By the way, Dusty has been signed to Atlantic in the interim. So he says, and we know you played for Dusty, and uh, we like, you know, we talked a bit, and he offered me the job that this guy was just vacating. I said, I don't think so. He said, why? I said, well, I'm nothing like that guy. I'm a marketing guy. It's what I do. He said, it's what we want. We want marketing. I said, you know, I've taken a job, you know. He says, what? And I tell him what it is. And he said, he looked at me in astonishment. He said, you mean you're going to turn down Atlantic Records to work for a fucking bacon company? (laughs) I said, well, it's not quite like that. But, you know, yes, I'm turning it down. He said, what are they paying you? We're getting a little bit of right. heat going on here. I said, they're paying me three and a half thousand pounds a year and a company car. He said, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'll double that, no company car, and don't you dare ask me for a raise for two years. I mean, what can you do? I said, that's how I started. Yeah. I never knew Ahmet. At that time, it was just Nessui and me. Nessui by then, was you know, head of international and the jazz department was what he was responsible for. So I joined Atlantic
1: in uh, 1969. Okay, 1969 is yeah. when the first Zeppelin album comes out.
2: The first had, been out, had just been released you okay. know, when I joined, and they were... Working on the second one. So uh, that was uh, w- when I came in. And, uh, you know, I thought, oh, good. This is a great opportunity for me to show what I can do. And, you know, I was helping with the design process of the cover and, you know, so forth. And uh, Jerry Greenberg, who was the president of Atlantic then, had uh, gone to the band and got them to put out a uh, whole lot of love. Right, as edited version as right. a single. So I said, that's great. This is huge. I'll, I'll schedule the single, which I do uh i don't think i'd actually met peter grant at that point by the way but i'm working on on the record i think we may have spoken on the phone but that was it so i put the single out okay and i get this call from peter grant the manager the manager yeah phil carson (laughs) it starts like that he was a very you know heavy dude i want you to come to my office immediately so i go to his office and he says. You know, we don't want to single out. By then, I'd shipped the damn thing, by the way. Three and a half thousand of them. He said, you got to get them back. I said, I'm not going to get them back. This is it, you know. I don't care. Jimmy Page doesn't care. Get them back. He says, you want to phone your boss and ask him? So I call him. I'm there. I explain to him. He says, do what he tells you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I get the, the, these singles back. So we were a bit daggers drawn, Peter Grant and I, in the beginning. And uh, I, by the way, I wish that when I got them back, I'd kept them. Because you know what they're changing hands oh, for? Yeah. No. <laughs> it's like hundreds of dollars per s- seven inch anyway i didn't keep them i destroyed them so that was how my first meeting with peter but we actually got to be very friendly and uh, it turns out he lived very close to where i was at school and
1: uh, you know we just we, we we built a rapport and so was he that intelligent or was oh, the band I, that good or was he just a oh, bully no no
2: actually it's all of those yet so much more Highly intelligent man. Could be a major bully. Uh, The band was that good. And his mission in life was to let Jimmy Page be the creative genius that he is, keep everybody else away from his band, and that's the way they went about it. Because by the time I joined, the first album had already done pretty well in America. So they were really expecting this, this second record to come, and it was... It was going to be big, so they actually at that point were with Frank Barcelona, the agent, premier talent, premier talent, and uh, that didn't last long because the band was so big they didn't need anybody else. And Peter saw what he had; he knew what the mystery, how he could create mystery by keeping people away. But by that time, I got pretty friendly with them, you know. So I was, I was on the road with them most of the time and uh peter quickly realized he had some bozo that he didn't have to pay that would do all the work you know so that's how our relationship sort of flourished for the first few years there and uh it was just a magic thing to be part of and then until the drugs kicked in it was an amazing ride i mean being that close to led zeppelin was massive for me because i was the conduit. To Atlantic from from Atlantic to Led Zeppelin, they wouldn't talk to anybody else except Armet. You know? So it was, you know, I was the man, you know, at that point. And what about the Stones coming seventy one? Uh, well, Ahmet signed the Stones, right? Uh, in, yeah, Was it seventy one? I guess it must have been about right. Then. Yeah, yeah. I was at. Or I, by then I was working more for Ahmet than Nessui. Uh, you got to understand that the. Um, the the, the the corporate culture of Atlantic was really no corporate culture, <laughs> right? It was Jerry Wexler, who was in the studio most of the time, still clinging to the last vestiges of R&B. And there was uh, Nesui, who by that time was setting up worldwide distribution right. with Weir, of Weir. W- which I helped him with. I was actually on the board of most of the companies at the beginning. And uh, Ahmet, who was... Signing everything English that could move. Uh, so I was in the right place at the right time, which leads me back to what I was telling you earlier about the luck factor of being an A&R All these English bands wanted to be where Aretha had been or was and Otis had been and Benny King had been and Ray Charles had been they wanted to be on Atlantic Records so the guy running Atlantic Records didn't have to look very hard people were coming to me so uh, it was a very good
1: period but Atlantic was not famous for rich deals just no, the
2: opposite. It, it was absolutely the opposite. But, but we broke English acts in America. That's why they wanted to be there. So Ahmed had uh, made a deal with um, with uh, with uh, Robert Stigwood. Okay, Robert Stigwood, Right. So, and also he had, we were distributed then by Polydor and so many of these, the Stigwood artists were all on Polydor, so that's how, that I had my office within Polydor at that time, and a a lot of stuff was coming along. Ahmed had signed Yes by the time I joined the company, and uh, we, I thought Yes was a great band, a great band, Uh,
1: and they recorded the first album yet which is simply called yes right right but that i think it's called yes and it has an incredible version of every little thing yes it does that's right
2: yeah it does so there's a couple of cover versions on that album
1: then they did time and a word right which which was a total stiff in america well they both were they okay. had sold no records. My dentist turned me on to the first one. Is that a fact? I would tell everybody about it, yeah. How funny. Well, it it still did right. nothing. Right, no, it did you know. nothing. I was yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And neither did time
2: and a word, Right. But by then, I was really working this bank because I thought they were terrific. And mm. we'd sold quite a quantity of records within Europe. We had like a top five in Belgium, which meant maybe 4,000 records right. or something. I mean, nothing to write home about. But like you said, the Atlantic deals were not rich deals right. anyway. So... Uh, Atlantic dropped Yes after Time and a Word, okay, and uh, the drop notice went out and uh, I I called up Nesui. I said, man, we can't let this group go, you know, and he supported me, so I re-signed Yes to start with the Yes album. That was what was the deal? The same or worse? No, it was pretty much the same. I mean, you know, they were desperate. They didn't want to get dropped. Right. right? So when I called up and said, "Look, we're rescinding that the drop notice," it was it went down quite well. Right. So we made another Atlantic record style deal for for Yes, and the first record was um, was the Yes album. Right. At that point, uh, Brian Lane uh, was the manager. manager. Yeah,
1: he was not the manager before then.
2: No, the manager before then was a guy called Roy Flynn, who was the general manager of uh, the, the industry hangout, the Speakeasy.
1: And then, what had Brian Lane done before?
2: Um, <laughs> Brian Lane, before that, uh, was not known as Brian Lane. He was known as his real name is Harvey Freed, and Harvey Freed was a known—how um, can I put this delicately—alterer of the charts. Okay, okay. All right. So he, people knew he could work a little magic by doing that and uh he he came along and i must say it was his idea to call it the yes album okay? and richie thought what are people going to ask for right right so yes album. Said, let's call it that so so we did um and <laughs> brian you know, i came to know and love and hate Brian at the same time. Um, I've always said he's a man that would could tell you a lie when the truth would be a positive advantage. Right, to him right, right, world. right, right. I know a couple of people like that. Yeah. But nonetheless, he did a good job. You know, and, and the band was incredible. Uh, and I used everything th- I knew to break them in America because
1: the Americans didn't give a fuck by this time. Okay, you know? was Peter Banks. How did how did he leave the band?
2: Well, they, they fired him after the uh, Time and a Word album and got Steve Howe in. Right. So they fired him, and we
1: made another record with him called Flash. Right. In a group called Flash. I bought, yeah, I bought which that. Which was a good record. And there was Badger too. Badger was Tony Kaye. Right. Yeah. Tony Kaye been replaced by
2: Rick Wakeman. Not on the Yes album. Again. Right. It came later. How yeah. did he get booted? Well. Tony Kate is a great Hammond B3 player, a really great Hammond B3 player. Rick Wills, Rick Rick Wakeman, has so much dimension. Right. You know, who you're going to get. See, there's an interesting thing here. Atlantic Records, all of us that were there at that era, particularly with, with Jerry Greenberg, who I cannot say enough about, okay? Jerry Greenberg was... A fantastic leader of people he was very young he was like 32 when he got the job running atlantic but he knew promotion he actually understood what a hit was how to get it how how to make it work as and a musician as well by the way he was a drummer right well it's not really a musician is he was a drummer but okay
1: so um, but the drummer is always a business guy yeah
2: that that sometimes is true also that's uh the last thing a drummer says to his band before he leaves is, "Hey guys, I've got a couple of songs." But that's another story. <laughs> so he was the—he uh, was a great leader, someone I really, really liked working with. And I, you know, I was so sorry that when he decided not to do that job anymore. I mean, he and I had such a partnership of, of, rec- of recordings. So I digress. We were talking okay, about. Okay, so yes. when you're Atlantic, yes.
1: Are you an A and R guy who signs the band? Are you a marketing guy? Are you the guy who goes in the studio and gives recommendations? Initially,
2: I was the marketing guy, and you know, we don't forget in, in that era when I first joined in '69. We didn't have WEA internationally. Right. We were distributed through Metronome in in Scandinavia, Polygram in England and Germany, and different labels all over Europe. So my job was just cultivating those independent companies and make sure they worked on Atlantic Records. So, yes, it was marketing, but I was also there to spot English talent that we could... Signed just for America, because the deals would be even cheaper if we right, didn't do this for
1: the world. Because you only pay half
2: uh, right. for the rest of the world. So uh, you know, that, that's what my job was. And as a musician, of course, you know I was able to go into a studio and make recommendations. So when I say it was, I was very much involved in the Yes album. In fact, the engineer uh, that I, I introduced Eddie. him to Eddie offered, because Eddie was a tape op at that recording studio that I told you about, right. which is called AdVision. And one of the jobs I had, you know, before I joined Atlantic it was, um, well, I was still making records. This was before I joined right. General Foods, actually. was making cover versions for Woolworths of hit albums. And I had this tiny budget, and I had to make an album in a night, a whole album. So I would book, Eddie would with the tape up, and, but he was also a budding engineer. So I would book uh, AdVision Studios from 8 to 10 for two hours and then 11 to 1 for two hours, okay? Knowing that nobody's going to be, be there. Be there, okay. Right. So we were just... We were I bought a reel of 8-track. 8-track had just come out by then. and We had my own 8-track tape. We'd put it on and we would make an album in a night. We did that. And he would mix it in a night too? Everything Done finished in a night between eight o'clock and six a.m. in the morning when the cleaners came in and i hired proper musicians by the way the
1: top session players to get the tracks done and uh, then we'd just well that's how mutt lang started too, doing cover records i think it is south america uh, south South africa Africa, so okay so when you uh, so anyway i knew that's how i told
2: you i knew eddie and i introduced eddie to the band and he became their producer for Yes.
1: Okay. So, what were you involved in in that era, Atlantic, that was not successful that you thought was going to go?
2: Uh, well, I'm going to tell you about that, but can we uh, tell you about a couple of the sex- successful Okay, I was going to go there yeah, for, I figured, okay, okay, a couple of successful Yeah, points. right, okay. Well, I suppose yeah, What? how I broke Yes in America was because I was the guy that was taking Jimmy Page or Robert Plant, Scott Mooney, you know, for the right. hour-long the sessions. The DJ in New York City. Yeah, and then up in, in Boston, WBCN, right. with Oedipus up there. Right. So these guys became my friends. So I would be able to get new stuff right. with these guys. So they gave yes the time of day, and th- that's how that really started breaking. Because Atlantic was not interested. I'd gone against the a and they dropped them. So now they're getting forced to work them again. I mean, Jerry Greenberg was extremely supportive, but the rest of them were not so supportive. But it, uh, So you heard Roundabout is a hit. I thought Roundabout was a great song. Yeah, okay, sure. so
1: then when they start to go off the rails, they do Tales from Topographic Oceans. They do the three, that's two albums. Then they do a three-album live set. Were you supportive of that? Were you telling them, whoa, this is too much?
2: Well, you know, it's progressive music. You know, in England is a hot, was the hot... The birthplace right. really of progressive music. I kind of like what they were doing. Um, you talk about that three album set, it was the biggest album in the history of our German record company. The Germans love a three album set for some reason. So, uh, you know. So we, there was
1: no trying to talk them down, we'll sell more as a single or something like that? Not really. Um, obviously, we, we wanted singles, but
2: it wasn't to be. And of course, eventually, you know, it, it, the yes thing fell
1: apart as well. It just. You know, okay, so how, wait, when did you leave Atlantic Records?
2: I left in 1985 at the end of 85. Okay,
1: so let's go back. Okay, You had a success with Yes, and then we were going to see another one. Um, I signed Virgin Records to Atlantic. Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah,
2: it was. Uh, I, <laughs> My then wife was running uh, a, a TV show called The Old Grey Whistle Test, which is a legendary, it was a legendary show. And uh, her and the producer... Uh, decided that they were going to put a piece of music on that someone had brought into them that day and those days this is really very early on it's before videos so this show had a dj they had a live band in the studio and they would play new music but they put old film to new music it was quite clever clever the way they did that and then this, the producers worked out that any piece of film fits any piece of music. <laughs> Eventually it'll sync up. Right. You know, so so they had this old, a lot of old film they used to, this particular one was an old skiing thing, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was a bad boy in those days, you know, and I knew that Tuesday nights when the show was live, that was my date night because I know I'm going to get caught, you know. You know girlfriend was in the studio so she calls me one tuesday afternoon when i'm you know getting ready to go out and she says you have to come into the show tonight you know there's someone you really got to meet he's brought in this piece of music and you tubular bells you got to hear and i didn't know what it was right so i go in there and i'm astonished by this piece of music and the guy she wanted me to meet was richard branson okay so i made a deal with richard on the spot i signed virgin records For one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, you know, and they were with us for ten years with Atlantic for ten years, and two. And now this is another thing about this guy Jerry Greenberg, who I know you've interviewed. So I said to him, "Look, I've signed. I know this is unusual. I've signed this album, which is." totally instrumental he said we got no chance with that in america i said look it's groundbreaking trust me so he gets the record he says you're right it is fantastic it sounds like a movie soundtrack so i said well that's a good idea you know he goes to warner brothers the exorcist had just been made and the exorcist soundtrack was cut done with an orchestra at a great cost He plays this, or somehow somebody gets it to, what's the name? Freakin'. Freakin'. And he says, that's going to be my soundtrack. That is how Tubular Bells broke, totally down to Jerry Greenberg. Right. And I think Atlantic sold, like, 20 million hours. Yeah, there
1: was some unbelievable figure on that. It was really incredible.
3: Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun, such a great entertainer.
1: Okay, and you were going to talk about a couple of misses.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Do we have to go there yet? Okay. Uh, well, uh, Paul Kossoff's band was a total okay. miss. I'm going start. I suppose my biggest miss ever was uh, uh, the reconstituted small faces with Stevie Marriott, you know. Ian McLagan, Steve Marriott, uh, Kenny Jones, and Rick Wills on bass. And I thought we made a pretty good record. I had to buy them out of A&M and it just went absolutely nowhere, nowhere. So uh, that was my Okay, so how does it end with Atlantic? Um, It ended in 1985, as was the last year I was involved in any way with the mainstream Atlantic. Uh, Mick Jones, really... A foreigner. A foreigner. was getting an award at a TV show called The Tube, which took place in a town called Newcastle uh new, new newcastle to london is a bit like pittsburgh is to new york okay right you don't want to go there You're right you see? but the tv show was being done from uh from new york from from uh, newcastle newcastle so mick says to me look i'll go but you know you've got to come with me i said well, okay right. uh and and we've got to get a private plane well, what the fuck? I mean, this, right. <laughs> little did he know they were gonna, I was going to recharge the, the royalty account anyway. Right. So, so we get a little plane and we, we go up to, um, to the, the tube. And you know what it's like with TV shows. There's a hell of a lot of hanging about. Of course. This particular one was a, a live show, but they would have a, run, a live run through with one audience and then they'd kick the audience out. Kind of like SNL still does it today. That's exactly what they, they, they do. So this is the same sort of thing. So I'm just wasting time, you know, I've I found an office, there was no one in it, so I start getting on the phone, you know, doing work, you know, calling America, this, that and the other. Then I hear an American voice that I kind of recognise, doing exactly the same thing in another vacant office. Turns out to be a chap called Mark Puma. Mark Puma was a, a, a runner for Led Zeppelin, and I've worked with him a lot in the concert East and Concert West days. So I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got this band, and, you know, we're... Doing the show tonight. So what are they called? It's a Twisted Sister. Now I never heard a Twisted Sister, but I see them. This group of, you know, guys with makeup on. You know, and they're all seven feet tall, walking around the place. And uh, he says, "Yeah, well, you know, we really want to get signed in England. I made a deal with a with a uh, independent label, but I've got to do something. And we we, we spent out. To be honest, we spent our last money getting over here to to see if we can get signed." so I said well how will I take a look at him." meanwhile I mixed on a break I said oh I've just met Mark Puma you know and he says he's got this group called Twisted Sister Mick says to me Twisted Sister they're all over the radio in New York okay little did I know and nor did he that on the radio because JJ French the the, the guitar player had inveigled a way to buy Cheaply on WNEW and all they were playing with the you know the the hook of one right. of one of their songs. You know, so Mick thought this was an airplay, which it actually wasn't. So I thought well, that's interesting. You know, so I go down there and I watch them and the, the run through. I mean, the songs are pretty good I mean they're not pushing the barriers of rock and roll any further forward you know but um, there's uh, they had something and then in the show when it went live my god they were good they were really good so the Mark says well look we're doing the Marquee on Thursday the show's on Tuesday okay Uh, Marquee was really an opinion making place in London held, held about 500 people something like that so he said would you come down and see the band I said sure I get to the marquee, it is packed. And I'm Mr. Rock and Roll in London. You right. know, I've signed these bands and I thought I knew everything. You know, you Still do to that. To that <laughs> so uh, anyway, they kill the audience because on, on the live TV show, Dee Snider was restrained, not so in the uh, marquee. My God, they were a great live band. And they looked brutal up there, you know, brutal. So at the end of it, uh, Mark... Mark Puma says to me, what do you think? I said, okay, I'll sign them. And he looked at me in astonishment. <laughs> you know, and he says, what, to Atlantic? I said, well, that's where I work, sure. He said, well, you've got to come back and meet them. I said, I do not want to meet the band. I will sign the band, okay? I'm going to give you enough to make the record. No advance beyond that. Okay. In those days, it was a bit more expensive to make records than it is of now, perversely. But, uh, you know, I, I'll do that. G- don't look for a big deal, but I will sign the band. So eventually he persuades me to come and meet them. But, of course, they're nothing like that. Right, know, right, right, right. Uh, D Snyder is... A, You know, he's a great guy, one of my best friends to this day. So, um, you know, we get talking, and I I make the deal. And my deal, I I, I then call up Jimmy Page, who owned the Sol Studios, which had two bedrooms in it. So I said, I've signed this band. I want you to give me a decent rate. He said, okay, sure. And I want to use your engineer, Stuart Epps. So he makes me a very reasonable deal. But still, you know, it's a residential studio, you know, and the deal I made for these guys was $60,000. That included flying them over to England and back, the studio time, everything, $60,000. So I make the deal, okay? The next Tuesday is the Lawyer's Lunch Day at Atlantic Records. Lawyer's Lunch Day is, I think they still have it, and is about 14 of the business side of Atlantic in there, plus whoever is the president or chairman. Ahmet would occasionally join it. It's where they go over the business things of the the time. So uh, if I've got anything, if I wasn't there. I would call in, you know, so I, we got in the room, it's one of those big conference rooms with the, um, you know, little speaker in the middle, if you visualize it, and 14 lawyers and business affairs people sitting around there, and this particular day, Doug Morris chairing it, you know, so he says, um, he said, oh, Phil, what what have you got, I said, I, well, I've signed a band, he said, oh, great, great, good, you, you've, you're always good at that, you know. So uh, I said, yeah, yeah, uh, but this is an American band. He said, American band? You signed an American band in? And I said, yeah. They did this TV show. They destroyed the place. And, you know, I've made a very reasonable deal. He says, what are they called? I said, Twisted Sister. He said, Twisted fucking Sister? I've turned that band down five times. <laughs> There's a kid in here, Jason Flom, thinks they're like, I've told him he's fired, if ever. He mentioned them again. So I, I I don't, Doug, I really don't know about that, but, you know, I've signed them, and that's it. Like, I did tell you I was mouth almighty, didn't I, earlier on, and this was no exception. And I remember him saying to me, on your own head, then. This is really early days for Doug, 1983. So, and he had not signed anything at, right. at that point. So uh, I said, oh, yeah, Doug, on my own head, is it, you know, like, yes emerson lake and palmer acdc on on my own head like that is it and you could hear the silence echoing over three thousand miles of telephone lines and that was the beginning of the end for my relationship with doug morris okay so uh i signed twisted sister i called up jason flom who reminded me of something he said you signed my band I said, yeah, Doug told me that, you know, he was going to fire you if uh, if you mentioned them again. What do you mean, your band? He said, well, don't you remember? One day you were, you were in uh, the office and I gave you a package. I said, yeah, I vaguely remember that. And I, I did remember it because, I, you know, what I do, I used to get the 8 o'clock flight in the evening back to England. And uh, I've, he'd given me this package, as he so rightly said, and I was sitting in my first-class seat, you know, sipping my first-class champagne and about to enjoy my first-class caviar. And uh, I thought, I'd better listen to little Jason's stuff, you know. In those days, you, that, I think Walkman had just come out at about that time. So I opened this package he gave me, and the first thing I'd pull out is, like, a a, 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 a cassette. Then i pull out a picture of this this band. This is before I'd seen... In women's clothing, you know. And then the next thing I out is this, this stenographer's pad, about eight pages of closely written notes by Jason Fromm <laughs> about this band. And I took one look at the picture, one look at the memo, another look at my champagne and caviar, and I threw the whole lot in an airline trash bag. Right. So I didn't even know it was his <laughs> band. But I will give him this you know he has claimed he signed twisted sister he did not but without any shadow of doubt he broke twisted sister because he made it a mission he was going around putting up posters himself everywhere and uh you know that nobody cared except jason flom about this band and he did it on his own and we got that first album up to two hundred thousand or whatever it was which is enough to make the next album grudgingly you know from doug and so forth and uh, that was a big big moment really because the second album did have songs on it and doug got behind it but i'm just remembering some some little thing after i'd made got them in the studio uh We were making the record, and I realized there was a song on there that could be a hit single. So I said to him, look, what we're going to do, we we track everything, then we're going to concentrate on I Am I Me. Okay, we're going to finish it up, mix it, get it done before we address any overdubs, mixes of anything else. And so I'm at Jimmy's studio, six weeks, we do this and it sounds great. So then I got them a gig at the marquee because people wanted to have the band back. So I said, we're going to do two nights at the marquee, we're going to record it live okay, the B-side of a 12-inch version of a single will be 20 minutes of Twisted Sister live, okay. So, the result of all this is I went a little over budget. I, the deal was 60000 I think I came in at $72,000. And I called up Sheldon Vogel, who was the financial, actually vice chairman of Atlantic, who was, you know, really enamored by Doug Morris in those days, not so much later, but in those days, and, uh, he, we, we have this hell of a row he said uh, he said I've just got this invoice here from uh, Soul Studios and uh, we're not going to pay it I said what do you mean you're not going to pay it he said well you're 12,000 over budget I've paid the rest of it I'm not paying the overage I said well you do realise this is Jimmy Page's studio do you? he said I don't care whose studio it is I'm not paying it so I said well just put me through to arm it, will you now, you've got to realize I was kind of the golden boy. It was like a lot of people thought I was Ahmet's illegitimate son, <laughs> but I wasn't, as far as I know. So, uh, you know, we've, he, he said, don't be ridiculous, just you know, pay it yourself and I'll reimburse you. So, so I took care of it. And uh, that was a bit of a rough moment for me at, at the company I worked for, but by then I didn't care because, you know, I was fireproof. Still the only person Led Zeppelin would speak to and this huge track record of artists that I'd signed, so it didn't really bother me at all. So uh, the Twisted Sister record came out, did great business, of course. And uh, in 1985, I thought, well, you know, I think I want to make a break. And at that point, both Jimmy Page and uh, Robert Plant had asked me to manage them so did a number of other artists so I thought well how can I kind of use this to my advantage so I call up I said to um, uh, Atlantic look the need for an office in London is diminished you know lately because all the big English bands you know are on on the way out whatever you know I'd like to have my own record label so Doug thought this was a great idea Because then I'm outside the mainstream of Atlantic, you know, so there's no threat of any kind. So I will never forget the meeting that we had when we did this. I said, look, I just want like a reasonable deal, uh, but I was making quite a lot of money back in those days. But I want a reasonable deal. I want some kind of salary. It doesn't have to be what you're paying now, but I just want, you know, T&E, the, you know, office paid for, you know, and uh, I want to set up a record label. But I also, you know, want to manage any artist that's on Atlantic. I know I've already got Jim Robert, okay? So Doug couldn't wait to make the damn deal. He really couldn't. And Steve Weiss was my attorney in those days. Legendary guy, as you know, Led Zeppelin, Vanilla Fudge, Dusty Springfield even. So uh, he's there and we're, we're getting everything we want. And I could see that this steam coming out of Sheldon Vogel's is because I make a three year deal, okay, which still was quite a lot of money, even though I took a a lower salary. So uh, Steve is packing up his stuff, you know, and and I said, Steve, you've forgotten something, you know. He said, "Oh, quick as a flash." He said, "Oh, yeah. Why don't you tell them?" Okay. I said, "Yeah, well, I've been here quite a length of time. Had some big success with you guys. I think a terminal bonus is in order." And Sheldon looks at me incredulously. He's one of my closest friends now, by the way. I mean, I've got on a very well with him. But he looks at me incredulously. He said, "A terminal bonus? I mean, you've got everything you've asked for." What do you want? And I said, half a million dollars. <laughs> and he's got his legal pad. He threw it on the floor. I didn't get half a million dollars, but I did get a terminal bonus. And Well, uh, how much was it? I, did I can't it, tell you, Okay. But it wasn't half a million dollars, <laughs> believe me. But I got something. So um, I started this record label, and I knew that uh, it was not going to be easy. So uh, I wasn't that um, active about signing anything. But uh, by then... Uh, all the English bands that I had anything to do with and some that I had nothing to do with wanted to be with me. So I opened a management company with Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, both with their own solo albums. Bad Company, which I was in partnership with Bud Brager, um, who was Motorhead. Uh, and that's how that company started. So I had a big deal going from the beginning. And then, of course, I formed the firm between Jimmy and... Uh, Paul Rogers, right. so I had a
1: really very successful few years there Look, How did it end with that joint venture, so to speak? Well, he ran it after the third
2: year, they didn't want to pay anymore, right. but, by the way the uh, office rent that they were paying was to a building I owned in London so it, <laughs> it, it, it was it was quite a good moment for me, but by then I've become, you know, quite a the management side of it. And did you like
1: management as opposed to working for the label?
2: It, you know Look, we talked about Jerry Greenberg before and what a great guy he, he was. And I, under him, I think I could have been there forever. I really do. We had a great rapport. But he, he did, he, and he wanted me to move to London. Sorry, a big one, leave London and move to New York to be executive vice president and assistant to right. the president. So um, I didn't go, you know. And in retrospect, I think he was sort of knew what he wanted to go and he was sort of grooming me to be the next president, which logically I would have been at that point. So I just wonder, you know, where Doug would have gone had I made that move. I mean, he's been an enormously successful force in our business. But uh, I did give him his first hit single. And uh, perhaps by not going to America, I did him a big favor. Who knows where life could have gone, you know
1: okay so today you're involved with foreigner i am and anything else or are you just a foreigner i've been trying to retire I'm 75 you know i'm trying to give it up but foreigner
2: is a is a great love of mine it, even back when jerry greenberg and john Kalodner signed them back in the uh, early days i knew mick as a musician by the way back in that era i told you about so i knew who he was and he he actually is a great guitar player who Came from the same area as Jimmy Page and uh, Eric Clapton and uh, Jeff, Jeff Beck, Beck. Uh, and he's just a, a, a brilliant player. And uh, he didn't form one of those English bands because uh, a French singer came over to, to record, who used to have Jimmy Page, you know, as, as his guitar player. He was trying to find a guitarist to. Uh, go back with him to Paris. And uh, eventually, Mick Jones went to Paris. He was with Johnny for years. Most Americans have not heard of Johnny Halliday. Right, just recently died. Yes, he did. But he it was to France what Elvis was to America. I mean, if Elvis had lived, he would be no bigger in America than Johnny Halliday was in France when he died recently. I mean. the the government closed down the Champs Elysees to do a procession for Johnny Halliday. I mean, he was enormous, and Mick wrote a number of his hits, and uh, that was that was just you know quite a, a big deal for Mick Jones. Believe me, you know. So how did uh, he start Foreigner? He started Foreigner with, um, Mick started Foreigner. Yeah. Yeah. He came back uh, to England, started working with Gary Wright in uh, Wonder Wheel and a couple of other projects. They moved to New York and he had this bundle of songs and he took them to Bud Prager, who was managing Mountain, which was one of the bands that uh, Mick was in. He said, oh, I've got these songs. And Bud Prager said, well, they're pretty damn good. You know, let's demo them. And I must. To say that not many people know this, but Bud Prager, he invested everything he had in Foreigner, everything, including his pension plan, you know. And uh, first of all, they were turned down by everybody, everybody, including Atlantic. But then, you know, he he persevered with Atlantic, and eventually had uh, Jim Delahant and Jerry Greenberg, Jim Delahant was in A and R, come down. I don't think Jim Delahant liked them
1: at all, but Jerry saw something in them, and the rest is history. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I vividly remember hearing that song on the radio it feels sure. like the first time, and I literally—you know—people talk about this, but I literally drove to the record store. Yes, they did. I just yeah. had to be able yeah. to play it out in yeah.
2: I read what you in your your blog, what you right. said. You know, that was. Uh, but you're right. A lot of people did that. But there's a funny thing about Foreigner that. Uh, You know, it's worked to our advantage in later years. They were a bit of a faceless band. Right. You know, most people out there couldn't name anyone in Foreigner to this day. So what had happened in 2004, I called Mick up out of the blue, you know. I said, uh, what are you doing? I haven't seen anything that you're doing, lady. He said, well, you know, i would kind of given up. You know, Mick, uh, sorry, Lou, had this illness which, you know, prevented him from delivering. Right, know. Lou Graham. Lou Graham, yeah. And, uh, and, and Mick had his own issues back in those days with alcohol and so forth and he he'd by then become sober but he was still very nervous about doing anything but this was all in one phone call you know i so, said you know man those songs they're just too good to be sitting there he says i think you know l- let's get a band together so on the phone i could hear him oh, perking his ears I mean, right because we had a good relationship he, he knows he knew what i was capable of i said he said what do you think then who would be in it well i was managing jason bonham who i've managed since, since he was a child right and uh, i said well, we'll start we'll have jason on drums
1: well the funny thing is jason's was on jerry greenberg's label yeah, I signed him to it. I know. I <laughs> did, I never knew that connection. <laughs> yeah, right. so, uh, okay. So, okay, we'll start with Jason Bonham.
2: Yes. So uh, I, I said, and i tell you who else I, I would like to get in. There's a guy I put into Yes years, a few years ago. He wrote Owner of a Lonely Heart. His name is Trevor Rabin. He's a formidable musician, but he's really doing a, started doing soundtracks now. But I think I could get him. So I call up Trevor. He's very interested. So we had this uh, mix now. You know, feeling right. feeling it. So, uh, we had a meeting at uh, Trevor Rabin's studio. Jason, uh, Trevor, me, and Mick, and we're ready to go. We, we're going to find a singer. Jason said, "Well, you know, what about my singer, Charles West? He was a singer of the Jason Bonham band." So we said, "We well, we'll try him. Yeah, why not?" So we start thinking about who else is going to be in the band, and you know. They go, Mick goes back to New York and, you know, I was living here in those days. So, uh, Trevor calls me about four days later and he said, I can't do this. I said, what do you mean? You're pivotal to what we're doing. He says, Jerry Brookham has just offered me, like, a seven-figure number to do it. the soundtrack I think it might be that one about asteroids or something Right. so uh, I have to do it by the way he is a consummate musician you know he can can conduct a 90 piece orchestra with no trouble and an incredible engineer too he's just that guy but we weren't going to get him so uh, that was the end of that but by now Mick is interested so you know i managed to get a gig with a radio station up in santa barbara that uh, they're doing a charity event so let's just take a gig for the hell of it so we get the old foreigner sound guy a guy that would play keyboards for years with foreigner tom gimble who's the multi-instrumentalist that we we have to this day and jason and uh, oh jason called up um jeff Pilson. he had been in that movie rockstar with jeff pilsen so we've got jeff person on bass you know and it was a formidable band actually even without trevor Rabin. so it goes down great at this charity event which is in 2004 and uh he said uh well you know let's let's have a go then let 's try and do this, so we did unfortunately, Charles West didn't make it because he was so enthusiastic during rehearsals he had completely blown his voice out <laughs> by the time we did the show, so we knew we had to get somebody else, so we looked around we auditioned everybody i mean jimmy barnes from australia right who is by the way i tried to get a band together with him and jimmy page years ago but jimmy barnes blew that one uh but i still think he's one of the greatest rock singers ever
1: you remember cold chisel of course i saw them opening no i saw angel opening i don't know if i saw cold chisel but Uh, whatever there were some great bands in australia well they worked the thing about the australian bands was they said live they had it totally down i remember seeing in excess at the whiskey it was just astounding yeah yeah okay so it doesn't come together you're looking for a lean singer
2: yeah uh and we were going to go out with charles west again because we couldn't find any we honestly we auditioned so many people by tape some pretty name artists joe joe turner was one right and you know nobody was really getting it so at least Charles West was an incredible front guy. Right. So uh, we said, okay, Mick authorised me to get a few shows. I was begging to get $20,000 shows, and it was that difficult because the last tour was terrible with uh, Lou not being able to cut it properly. So, uh, but I get a, a string of dates together, and uh, we're getting ready to rehearse, and then Tom Gimble brings in this tape of this kid, Kelly Hansen. And we te- one listened to the tape, he'd, he'd had a karaoke mix, and he's singing that for us. So with about five days to go before the first show, we gave Charles West the bad news, and Kelly Hansen took over and changed everything. He's a f-
1: fabulous front man. Have you seen the band? with? Uh, I haven't seen it with Kelly, but, you know, what about the videos you were making some kind of documentary with Lou? And they were shot, in, like, in Nassau Coliseum or somewhere, or Jones Beach, they're online probably three years ago. Uh, no, not. the last thing we've we, we've
2: done with Lou was, was, and the rest of the old band, was a series of shows called Double Vision, where we have the current band right. plays a whole set, and then uh, there's a short interval, and then the original band comes out with Mick, Lou, Dennis Elliott, uh, uh, Rick Wills, Al Greenwood, and Ian McDonald. And uh, they play about five five songs. And then we all get together at the end and do, I want to know what love is and Hot Blooded. The roof comes off the place, to be frank.
1: Okay, I got a question. Suddenly I can't remember the name of the movie. I love this uh, movie. And it begins with an S or something. In any event, it's an English movie about getting a band back together. And the final song is The Flame Still Burns. That's right. It, 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 Mick wrote that. Uh, what the hell is it?
2: the group is called Strange Fruit exactly um, the name of the movie I keep forgetting that name it's right. a damn good movie Yeah. so
1: I love that but one yeah. of
2: great rock music how did that song get in the movie the director knew Mick and called him up and said look I need the songs I got aren't making it I need you know a couple of songs and he wrote Seven songs in a week, one of which w- w- they all use in the movie. Well,
1: uh, Flame still burns, yeah, which was, it? I think, is even better than uh, I want to know what love well, is. Well, we've recorded it again. Yes, I I've, I've listened to that yeah. version. Okay, so with this late date, you're involved with Foreigner, and you're trying to get out of the business.
2: Yeah, and I've still got Twisted Sister, of course, and Dee Snider. So um, Twi- Twisted Sister, people don't realize t- to this day, a massive in but Europe. But I
1: thought. Because uh, I hear from uh, J.J. French all the time. I'm sure you do. <laughs> right. And he said that they did a final tour and he sold his guitars, but then he talked about possibly doing it. Or is this just D calling it Twisted Sister? No, they went out as Twisted Sister. From uh, We put the band back
2: together when I was at a movie company for a while, the shooting gallery. And they, we did a horror movie w- with Dee. Right. That's how I got into the movie business. He called me up and said, Look, we need to, you've got to come and work at this record. I need you to help me get the soundtrack to go. And we did the most amazing soundtrack to Strangeland. It was a Billboard hit. It was uh, Kid Rock's first record, was on Dee Snyder's soundtrack, and Eminem was on it. We had everybody on this damn record. It was a big hit uh, soundtrack. Not such a big hit movie, but for a cult movie that cost very little, it it did okay, you know. And uh, after the movie came out, we decided we'd try and cut a Twisted Sister song to go on the soundtrack, which we did, and it was pretty good. So we decided to give it a go again. This must have been 2000, something like that. Right. And the first thing we did was uh, we got an offer from... uh, What's, what's that organisation that brings entertainment to the troops okay, USO. USO to go to Korea so we did, we went to Korea did a thing for the troops and by then everybody wants to give it a go again And we took it up to a pretty good level we were headlining with Aussie and Metallica in uh, the, a series of uh, events in Europe and the last time <laughs> Foreigner did Bang Your Head which is, no not Bang Your Head What's the big one in? There's
1: two really big ones. Talking about foreigner? No. Big, it's About Twisted Sister. Big German
2: rock festival. Reaperbahn. That's that's a. Uh, um, uh, I know what you're thinking, but that is the sort of red light area in Hamburg. The Reaperbahn. Shows what I know. I know. i uh, uh, Now I'm getting to know you. Nurburgring. What? No, New- that's a
1: racing track. That
2: is. But that's a big one. Rock, rock am Ring is is a big one. Right. God, Wacken, there's a show Wacken, massive, 100,000 people show up, so about three years ago, which was the last time Twisted City did play Wacken, they headlined, and uh, Foreigner were one of the support bands, and uh, Mick wondered what universe he was in when he was there, <laughs> actually, we, the funny thing is, we, we were making a little documentary, and uh, so I'm asking Mick questions. And I remember, I remember I started, he's sitting there, knowing he'd just done a set, knowing that Twisted Sister are headlining. Okay. So I, my first question to Mick Jones was uh, how did Twisted Sister change your life? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm that- no. <laughs> we can continue stories for hours Phil you've been fantastic literally I just have to cut you off because we can't go on for four hours but your stories and your career obviously is unbelievable you were there when it all happened yeah. you were not only a fly on the wall you were a participant mm-hmm. is there anything specifically we didn't cover that you need to cover I, I just I had a
2: little period I had in the movie business where I had a lot of fun with I made a, a, a documentary about Sun Records I saw
1: that was that one on PBS yes it was that Am- was great
2: American Masters thank you and we did the The soundtrack was pretty damn good too. I got everybody. Paul, once I had Paul McCartney, right. I, I then called Bob Dylan. Right. Once I had Paul McCartney and Bob Dylan, I called Tom Petty. So and Jimmy Page and Robert Plant played on it. It was a marvelous soundtrack. So uh, PBS wanted to do another one, so I did the uh, The House That Armet Built, the story of right. Atlantic. Which was a pretty good movie too. So I was quite proud of that departure from music into the, the movie business. I learned a lot. This little company, the Shooting Gallery, had already had a, a big hit when I joined. They made they made Sling Blade, and they specialised in low budget art films. And uh, it, I think I put the average age up by about ten years <laughs> when I joined these people. But it, we we had a bit of a run. But they
1: got carried away with it. That's, you know, the problem with movie business. Without a catalog, Coralco was the most successful independent movie company of all time. They went bankrupt. It's like, now there's STX today. They finally had a hit. The thing I hate about the movie business is everybody has a fucking opinion. Oh, yeah. Okay, whereas music, well, now the executives think they're big. But in reality, it comes down to the musicians. It sure does, yeah. And, you know, and it's something you feel or don't.
2: Yeah, actually, it's an interesting thing there that uh, I always felt that nobody could catch up with people like Jerry Greenberg and me because we had the greatest possible training that you could ever have from Jerry Wexler, Ahmed Erdogan, and Nesui Erdogan. And I remember, uh, and Tom Dowd, the right. engineer. I remember, I think it was either Tom Dowd or, or Jerry said to me one day when i was got the job and i'm in london he said look if you're going to sign a band make sure there's at least one virtuoso in the band you're signing because virtuoso musicians don't play with good musicians they only play with great musicians and if you think about it there's four virtuosos in led zeppelin right right there's two or three in yes you know, this is why, as you so rightly put it, it's the music that counts. And that training from those three guys always uh, kept that in my head. way, I have to remember something that Doug Morris said to me on that fateful day. He said, What about this? Because I used to do little. Talks to our people from time to right. time, you know, and I'd always quote this virtuoso musician scenario. What about that uh, that thing you pontificate about when you're talking to people about how you've got to have a virtuoso musician? Who the fuck is the virtuoso musician in Twisted Sister? I said D. Snyder. He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "He has virtuoso charisma." Absolutely,
1: <laughs> absolutely. You know this. You know the. You, you bring up a lot of things. One. Do you have to see the band live in order to be convinced? Or can a band make it not be great live? Uh, A band, bands have made it and not be
2: great live, of course. But for me, I had to see a band live. And that's another thing that Ahmet taught me, you know, is that you have to go and see your band's play, even after you've signed them. Because that's when you see your band meet their audience. And that will teach you how to promote and market that band. Ahmet was, and we could, we should do another program about Ahmet because, you know, he was my mentor and my friend for many years. I did produce, or co produce rather, the final Led Zeppelin concert with, which we
1: did for Ahmet. And, uh, well, I just know all my dealings with Ahmet, which were not legion, but I remember I wrote about the song Black Velvet. And I was saying how, you know, it wasn't going. Ahmed Coleman goes, that track is a number one record. Yeah. Which, it, like, you know, like six weeks later, started to get traction, Yeah, yeah. and it went.
2: Oh, man. They knew this. I mean, I remember way after I left Atlantic and way, you know, way after my Strangeland soundtrack had come out with Kid Rock on it, he said, I want to go and see this guy Kid Rock you know, at the, the Planet the Roxy. And right, we, we, we went along, and we were sitting there, and Kid Rock comes out and nothing had happened yet for Kid Rock actually right. he turns to me and says this guy he's could be as big as Elvis <laughs> and nothing had happened at the right. time and he was pretty well right He uh,
1: erupted Okay. unbelievably and kid rocks one of the few people he's made a lot of money owns his own plane yeah, and he yeah, still sure. can work i mean i hear from him all the time he's he's an interesting character because his image is low class but he grew up in an upper yes, middle class yeah, yeah, his he father was Lincoln. he doesn't he let
2: people to know that by the <laughs> <So>, way exactly
1: <laughs> but the other thing i think that you were with and this is what people don't understand about the music business today it's mature Mm-hmm. You were there, okay, before the Beatles, which showed how much money and how what reach you could have before, when there was still independent distribution, when these people still own the label. Yes, that's now, right. Now, nobody in the music business has their own money in the game. No. When you have your own money in the game- Oh, boy. I, I have a, I have a promoter friend who promotes uh, clubs in Boston. He says, you've never really been a promoter till you've gone to the ATM at two in the morning to withdraw money to pay the band. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just really so I you know been there. I mean, one of the things on luxury I have is you know I was conscious when the Beatles hit. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm watching some of the Woodstock documentaries and they're talking about Vietnam War. Yeah, people have no idea what it was like to get your draft. I mean, be freaked out. You're going to have to go to this. war, and get your ass shot yeah, off. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was really crazy.
2: Um, yeah, I imagine. I mean, obviously that was when Zeppelin were b- breaking at the time. The Vietnam right. War was raging. You know, it was a
1: awful moment in. America. American history, you know, for sure. I saw Zeppelin a couple of times. First time I saw him at the uh Haven College, uh, Yale Bowl, and they were not good. This is just after the third album came yeah, out. Yeah. And you may or may not remember in 75, they canceled the tour because of you know, Joe, right. Robert's son dying. Right. Yeah. So uh, they were going to play the Rose Bowl, and they didn't. Mm. But they came back in 77 and played the Forum for a week. They were unbelievable. Yeah. They played all the songs. I mean, my favorite Led Zeppelin song is 10 Years Gone. They played that. I mean, really amazing. Yeah, that was a, I was there for that series. Right. Yeah, it was quite sad. And I also believe, you know, Robert says he doesn't want to do it. I guess I have a little bit of a bad reaction when these bands get back together solely for the money. It's just, you know, oh, they say, I want to have my kids mm. see them. No, we were there, we saw him, your yeah. kids don't get to see him. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I, Robert,
2: he has carved himself an entirely new path. Absolutely. Okay? And when we did the event, uh, the, the O2, right.
3: <clears throat>
2: I mean, he had got himself up there. I mean, have you seen any of the film of it? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, of course, was there. Foreigner supported that show. He was just astonishing. I mean, that, that they were absolutely on it jason bonham set them on fire because he knew every nuance that his father played and some he put in himself he knew every variation of every song that led zeppelin had ever played and he was the driving force uh, that night jimmy was playing great robert was phenomenal and john paul jones was john paul jones who is a genius right and
1: that, that night was just magic absolute magic so just staying on led zeppelin for a minute what's your favorite led zeppelin album uh i like the
2: second album that's really you know, i love since i've been loving you is one of the greatest songs of all time
1: for me for a long time it was the first album yeah. for me certainly yeah. days and confused but you have to understand when the second album came out in america yes the single had come out like a week or two before instant hit whole lot of love yeah i bought that album the day it came out i went to ej corvette i played it uh, that and only that for a week straight <laughs> and then suddenly everybody bought it yeah. and it was all you heard I could not listen to that album for years and then when you got back to it you know it's it's a great record but for a minute there it was overplayed but certainly uh, the first album of physical graffiti for me yeah They're both...
2: They're both...
1: and how come Jimmy could never like Robert could never find his own thing
2: uh I managed Jimmy for right. a, a period, and, of course, we, we had The Firm. Right. The I was managing. Uh, <clears throat> the problem with The Firm was that neither Jimmy nor Paul Rogers wanted to do the songs for which they were famous. Even so, we did two pretty big tours. Yeah, Radioactive. Yeah, I Radioactive was was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, And there's some good songs on it. But if only they'd just done a couple of Bad Company songs and a couple of free or a free song and, you know, a Yardbird song and a Bled Zeppelin song, that I could have been retired many years ago.
1: You know? <laughs> well, Robert Plant did. I was a big fan of the album with Twenty Nine Palms, yeah. etc. But when I went to see him on that tour, he would play some Zeppelin stuff.
2: Oh, he does now. Right. I mean, look, I managed Robert for a while, and uh, we'd parted company over that because uh, you know I remember having a conversation with him uh, outdoors in a restaurant with his band at one table. Robert and me and our respective girlfriends at another table between us was nile rogers okay, and his girlfriend but we, we have, this conversation is becoming heated so his band who are listening to everything we're right. saying i'm saying man you just do a couple of Zeppelin songs, for God's sake. And the bands, yeah, we'll never do, we'll never do Led Zeppelin. I mean, fucking band. Right, know. right. Okay. they can be replaced in a minute. In a minute. You know, we'll never do Led Zeppelin. And of course, you know, Robert and I parted company over that at that time. And of course, then he gets hold of Bill Kurbishly, who talks him into doing Led Zeppelin songs. And the rest is, is history. Robert and I are very good friends by the way. In fact, you mentioned 29 Palms. He wrote that song when he was coming to visit me in Palm Springs where I have a house. And uh, you know, he was with uh, Alana Miles at right. the time. And that line, I hear your voice on the radio, is about Alana Miles. Really? Just a little bit of... You
1: know. Okay. How many times have you been married?
2: Uh, who's counting? Um Three. Three, and are you married right now? I certainly am, yeah.
1: Now, how long How long has this marriage lasted? 20 years, 21 okay. years, yeah.
2: And you have any children? I have two. I have uh, my daughter, Jody, who is in our business. She um, uh, has invented a way of selling CDs at gigs by uh, using a charity thing. And I, there was a line in Bilbo recently from the head marketing guide atlantic says so jody carson is single-handedly <laughs> saving the physical disc market i mean she's she, she her clients are the who leonard skinner kid rock and she sells she's literally she's raised something like three million dollars for the shriners through this eagles her work client and uh you know she's made a she created a business out of nothing she has got four people working for her going to gigs all the time she started it with with she and i she was assistant tour manager merchandising girl and you know like and everything right. at one time and i could never figure out why we couldn't sell cds at gigs you know so i said look i think you've got to take the cds to the people so she and i took a box of cds each at the end of the show and this may seem undignified for the manager of the band and a legendary artist or manager, as I'd like to pump myself up to be, but we're out there. Go get your CDs up. <laughs> Twenty dollars for a CD. Come on, come on. We sold a box each that night. So I said, look, it's a little undignified for us to be out there doing this but we did it a couple more times but and we got all this cash from selling these cds at 20 bucks because you can't sell a cd at a rock show for less than 20 dollars because the record label wants you know nine dollars right the venue wants like five dollars right. so you've got to sell it at that price except because we in foreigner came up with the idea of pressing our own we covered every song. We took st- we st- studio recordings of every hit, and eventually, for, specifically for licensing and selling at shows. Of course, but it, it so was, you don't have
1: to. So the original right owners can't say no and don't have to get paid. Well, that's
2: there's that. But the interesting <laughs> thing is, we did eventually release the, um, the those uh, you know, re-records, uh, and we we got a gold album. <laughs> for see, the thing about Foreigner. Is we touched on this before, that they were a faceless band. Right. You know? Nobody knew who they were. I discovered around about 2005, when we were really starting this, that nobody knows who Foreigner are, okay? You know that thing. You're sitting on a plane. The guy next to you says, what do you do? Right. Okay? I said, well, I manage rock bands. And they said, who? No, not the who. Foreigner. Right. Who? No, not the who. Foreigner. I've never heard of Foreigner. Yes, you've heard of Foreigner. You know every song. And I start singing, and you know how good right. I am at that. Right. I start singing the songs. They know every song. So people who say they have not heard of Foreigner know every song Foreigner has ever recorded and had a hit with. Do you know, do you know, Bob, that Foreigner has more top
1: 10 singles than Journey? Did you know that? Well, I was just going to bring up Journey, and I didn't know that because I went to see the ursats Journey. I've seen them a couple of times. I went to see them at the Hollywood Bowl once. Three years ago. Yeah. And, you know, with uh, Anil, whatever his name is, the Filipino guy. Yes, yeah, who's yeah. that And the reaction was beyond belief. Right. It was clear it wasn't Steve Perry, but what I realized at that point is the audience owned the songs. It was about them now. They'd grown up to it. They loved the songs. Didn't matter that it wasn't Steve Perry. They were there for the song. Yeah. Same thing I assume with Foreign. Absolutely the same. I mean,
2: but, but the problem is everybody's heard a journey. Right. Everybody.
1: Right. I challenge you to do this. Whoa, 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 I know you're the manager, but I think you're living in a little bit of a bubble. Okay. For those of us who lived, the first album was in 77. I want to know what Love Is. Was it 84, 83? It's, uh, the first
2: album came out in 78, right? They got together in okay. 77. Uh, and the I want to know what Love Is was on the fifth album.
1: Right. Yeah. So anybody who lived through that era knows who Foreigner is. Well, I have to stop. What made Journey different was the finale of The Sopranos. Irving
2: says two things made Journey different, okay? Finale of The Sopranos and a tour that they did supporting Def Leppard. He puts it down to those two things.
1: Well, they, wait, last, it was only last year that no, they... No, this is years ago. I know, because yes. last year they played stadiums. Then, in yes, level. I
2: know they did, but many years ago they did a theater tour.
1: I play, don't remember Playing that. like the Beacon in New right. York. Right. That size place. and uh, So theoretically, what could you do with Foreigner to achieve that same mind share? Um, I, I am going
2: to disagree with you, firstly, that everybody has not heard. It. I mean, I challenge you to do my test on a plane
1: one day. Okay. You know? People under the age of 40 no. But people over the age of 40, I'm surprised. People, our
2: target market is what you have just said, really. It's it's 40 and up. Right. Evenly split male, female, funnily enough. But you talk to people of, you know, between your age and my age, and you're saying, you know, this conversation, they have not heard of foreigner. They will tell you they have not heard of foreigner. I guess I've never experienced that, but I trust you. You've got to do it. Okay, uh, they, I will. Well, they, now you got, you got to go. Know, they know the songs, but they do not know who recorded them. So what I started to do when I realized that was every foreign ad print ad that I take has the song titles in it. Right. Them. So my mantra to my marketing director guy is the mantra, the songs are the brand. And over the last... It's been a slog, I'm telling you. Over the last 15 years, we've changed that perspective. But the reality is here we are with more hits than Journey, more top 10 hits than Journey, and we're worth one-third of Journey in the eyes of a promoter. Okay? We're gradually changing that because we're doing great business this year. But we've, this will be, next year will be our third Live Nation headline amphitheater tour. So, you know, we're looking forward to that one. Last year we had David Coverdale with White Snake and uh, Jason Bonham supporting, and we're looking to do a big, big deal for next year. So we didn't do it this year. We just did state fairs, casinos, and did amazing business and uh, you know that's but every time you've got to tell people who they are we've got the same number of hits as Fleetwood Mac we've only got one less top
1: 10 song than the Eagles but nobody's heard of Foreigner okay I'm gonna I'm gonna cut off your sales pitch and I'm a Foreigner fan okay I mean just like I was talking about you know because Rick Ocasek died or Rick Akasak however he wanted however he did pronounce it and of course their comeback was with Mutt Lang and you had the same thing, but their album with Mutt, the album that Mutt Lang Foreigner for, stupendous.
2: Stupendous. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, waiting for a girl like you doesn't get any better than no, that. I mean, never mind, you know, Jukebox Hero. No, Jukebox Heroes, different. Yeah. But it's like uh, urgent, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, the whole thing was a terrific album. But know? it was, you know, Journey is a different thing. Don't forget, they put out all the albums with the other singer, Greg Raleigh, that were stiff. Yes. Okay. And they certainly played stadiums before they broke up. Yes, they did. But you know, I remember Jeff Beck was uh, managed by Harvey Goldsmith. Yes. And before Jeff fired him, Harvey had him everywhere. Yeah. Jeff Beck is no better today than he ever was. He was always stupendous. Yes. But once he was on every TV show, yeah. the people who didn't know that yeah, yeah. realized that. Yeah, well, Harvey's so, a promoter. Right. Know. But I'm trying to say is the question is, you know, whether you can have that foreigner moment. I mean, if you tried to get a one of those multi-hits in a definitive uh, movie or anything— we have uh, had some
2: successes. We had uh, a sync license for "I Want to Know Lo- What Love Is." Was the final episode of um, uh, Orange is the New Black," and they used the lyrics for a wedding in the, in the thing, and they went out went out with the whole well, song. Well, it'll be
1: on TV forever. Yeah,
2: it will, but it's not as big as The Sopranos. Right, are. Sopranos that that really broke
1: the Journey. Okay, but the other thing about now, I mean, you talk about people don't know foreigner. We could sit here. And we could talk about the TV shows we watch, mm. and they could be completely different shows. This was an era where, if you watched TV, everybody watched the Sopranos. Yeah. Well, look, when these
2: things were coming out, there was only one radio exactly. format, you know, and we we didn't know it was
1: classic rock at the time, right? That, that was the only format. Okay, well, that begs the question: today's music, yes. where are you at on that?
2: Uh, personally I'm sort of nowhere with it because uh, you know I'm 75 and I'm getting ready to retire so my whole thing is working foreigner trying to get it where I want it to be and uh, you know working with Dee Snyder. we're making movies we're doing all kinds of different things with Dee who's an incredibly talented man by the way much much less playing music now than writing stuff and Co-producing his son um, Cody is making a movie shortly with a a big studio, so we're working that side of the business. But we're foreigner. I just want to leave this at least as big as it was back in the day, and we're getting there. You know, but it's it's a struggle for the for the for the reason I told you now. The, the big thing these days is sync licensing, as you right. probably know. And sync licensing is the number one driver of streams. Right. Okay? So we got a use in um, Stranger Things. Right. And and the streams went through the damn roof. So what song was it? Uh, cold as Ice. Okay. And that sudden, now we're starting to see younger people coming for, for, because of these things. So we're gung-ho after getting, if any music supervisors are out there listening, <laughs> I will cut you one hell of a deal. Okay, okay,
1: Stranger Things, they came to you or you went to them?
2: Well, Warners have a very good sync licensing department, and Warners own the original uh, right. thing, so uh, they came to us with that. You know? I don't have anyone... Out there, you know, because the, the major labels have almost a lock on this stuff because they've got such a massive amount of repertoire. You will go, you can go to a movie studio meeting, a, a studio meeting, and you'll see a rep from Universal, Warner, or, uh, well,
1: Kevin Weaver at Atlantic,
2: he was Kevin, from, well, right? They, my god, that guy gets everything. <laughs> um, Robert Plant called me up one day after I stopped managing him because he, right. he used to call me, still calls me frequently. Uh, he said, Can you get me like a, a movie thing? And I, and I called up Kevin, and I went, I spent he and I spent three days together. We called up Everybody that we knew. Everybody. Because I know a number of directors from my time in film business. He knows everybody. The two of us sat on that phone, and Kevin got him the end title to The Day After Tomorrow. Wow. Big movie, right? Right. Robert, in his wisdom, turned it down. (laughs) Artists.
1: (laughs) Artists <laughs> so We'll end with that Thanks so much for being okay. here Phil Once again you're listening to Phil Carson On the Bob Left Sluts Podcast We'll see you next week
4: slash compatibility.